Mark chapter 2. It's hard to be such a friendly church, isn't it? Mm. I'm so glad you guys like to uh, hang out together. Y'all can be seated for just a second. Please be seated. Mark chapter 2, and then we'll read in Mark chapter 5. But before I read God's word for us, I want to introduce to you um, John Cox. Many of you know John. Uh, John has been with us before. Earlier this year, this, this calendar year, John was with us, uh, leading us in our marriage conference. And this past weekend, he uh, led us in a parenting conference. So how many of you were at the parenting conference this, this year? All right, I see one perfect parent, two perfect parents, three perfect parents. Thank you, four perfect parents. Yes, I see the hand there. All right, there's about a dozen perfect, there's about, uh, there were probably 70 perfect parents that were created this weekend. It was awesome. And John helped lay out uh, seven different principles and then helped us apply them. And, and those talks will be online soon if you want to listen to those. John is going to come and preach to us this morning, preach God's word for us. John is from Jackson, Mississippi, where he was born and raised. He is the, uh, the lucky husband to Norma, to whom he's been married for 35, six years? Six years. And uh, together they have three grown uh, daughters from uh, 28 about to 33, um, Callie, Catherine, and Bonnie. And John has been, uh, in a clinical, uh, been a clinical psychologist for 30 years in Jackson, Mississippi. And so um, we are so thankful that you're here, John. We thank God for your ministry, brother. You've ministered to my family and, um, and to me. Thank you so much. John loves to cook and to win sale. So if you have questions about either of those, please feel free to ask John after the service. He's going to uh, boot, scoot, and boogie out pretty quick because he has a flight to catch. So if you don't catch him this time, then perhaps we'll catch him next time around. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and then Mark chapter 5, 24 through 34. Would you stand this morning for the reading of God's word? Mark 2, 1 to 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. In Mark chapter 5, verse 24 through 34. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John, would you come and bring us God's word, brother? Thank you. Yes, thank seated. you. Thank you. I'm glad to be back with y'all. It doesn't seem like that long ago, just October, for the um, marriage conference. Um, as I told a few of y'all before, um, I actually think parenting conferences are more fun. It's, I think it's because we all share a common enemy. You know, they're all at home with the babysitter, and we, it's not like he's sitting next to you and you got to watch your mouth. Um, but I love being with y'all. And I actually love teaching um, parenting stuff and marriage stuff. Vocationally, that's what I do. Um, I enjoy more deeply, uh, in my soul level, opportunities like this, where I am given the chance to worship and lead you there and lead you to the heart of our God. I'm grateful to Blake and the session for letting me do this, this opportunity, this trust. I, I thank you. We spent the whole weekend talking about parenting, so I thought it would be appropriate to sort of maintain some of our parenting theme uh, in our worship this morning. And that's actually easy, because if you're a Christian, you're not like, you know, doing religion here. You're somebody's child. <laughs> you're a child of God. Um, you read our, was the meditation from um, St. Corinthians in the bulletin? Is the med I, I sent it to you. I sent a meditation. It says this. No, actually, I'm going to read it anyway. So, Paul's quoting God in 2 Corinthians. God says to us, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, which is sort of God's um, chorus of the covenant, if you're a covenant student. And, and, and he says to them, go out from their midst, be separate from them, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I'll be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He calls us his sons and his daughters. And that's what we're going to look at together this morning. 
I study the book of Mark a lot. Uh, something about it just speaks my language. I love Mark. Um, it may be because uh, people believe that Mark was um, Peter's closest disciple. So there's a sense in which the book of Mark is sort of Peter's stories about Jesus, you know, and who doesn't like Peter? And, and I love, I'm struck by the person of Christ I find in Mark. He's alive and he's, he's active and he's aggressive and he's loving. So I want to look at these two stories that Blake just read uh, from Mark, and, and I think they both reflect one another, and I think they mostly reflect, reflect his heart toward us which is what I want to look at. Both these stories involve people who are desperate and helpless, like we often are. Both of these stories involve Christ's heart of healing for them, but both of them involve these words of family and belonging, of daughter and son, which is our bottom line. Now, as you remember, maybe from last time I got to preach to you, I'm a psychologist, not a theologian. I don't do a lot of heavy theology or exposition from the pulpit. I tell Bible stories. I like Bible stories. I mean, I'd use the felt board if you had it, okay? Like that. So I want to look at a couple of Bible stories in, in that listen for the family that Christ invites us to. In the first story, as you just heard, Jesus is in his own hometown. At some point, he and his parents moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and in this story, contrary to what he says about a prophet not being welcome in his own town, he's being mobbed, all right? He's in someone's home, and he's preaching to them all, and the place is like overflowing. People are crowding out the doors, which, by the way, kind of has always intrigued me about Jesus. Don't you think it's interesting that Christ, the most holy person to ever walk the planet, God incarnate was impossibly attractive to people who otherwise didn't like religion. Like the, the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the bad people found him impossibly attractive. Everybody was drawn to him. I've just always been struck by that. What, what was it about him that made the broken and the bad want to get closer to him? Ugh. Can we be like that? Anyway, so he's preaching in this house. <clears throat> Everybody's crowded in, shoulder to shoulder. People are probably looking through the windows. Some people are standing out on the doorstep. And suddenly the whole sermon is interrupted by this loud banging and this clattering, what my grandmother would have called a commotion, a big commotion over their heads. Someone is literally taking the roof apart. Now, depending on who you read, like the commentators, this is more or less out of control. Some commentators say, you know, Hebrew homes often had sort of a thatched awning or roof that you could remove, kind of like a sunroof, you know. But that's no fun, right? Um, the, most commentators say that... Um, these men were literally digging through the plaster ceiling, and they say that the Greek verb here implies aggressive demolition. And that's what I'm talking about, okay? <clears throat> now, as this happens, you can imagine everybody, including Jesus, I mean, the sermon stops, right? Everybody's everybody looking up to see what the racket is. It's sort of like all of a sudden if someone was, you know, crawling around on these beams here over our head, 
during my spellbinding sermon, no less. I mean, all of a sudden, you'd stop paying attention to me. You'd, you'd, be, you'd be looking up. And suddenly, these faces appear, looking down through the hole into the living room. And if that's not surprising enough, the next thing that happens is they see this man being lowered down through the hole by ropes. Crazy stuff, right? But what catches Jesus' attention, we're told, is not the demolition or the guys looking down or the trapeze act of the guy in the bed and all of that. We are told that what he sees, what he notices, is their faith. It's the first thing that he sees. And when he saw their faith. Now, we're going to hear the word faith a couple of different times in these stories this morning. Um, So let's just ask the question real quick. What is faith? Well, let's ask the shrink. You know, I mean, faith is an emotional, relational capacity of the heart. That's kind of my business. What is faith? I'll give you kind of my vibe on it. Faith, technically, is a bonding capacity of the human heart. It is an ability that ties us to something else. Love kind of does the same thing. Think about it like this. Um, Love is what ties you to your, your spouse, your fiancé. All right? You love them. You're not marrying love. You're not in love with love. Love is that heart inclination that ties you to them. Well, faith is that thing that ties us to Christ. It's that trust that makes my heart vulnerable, that makes my heart needful and dependent on him. Faith is that emotional heart connection that ties us to him. That's why he notices it. That's why he wants it. All right? So now, as they lower this man down, paralyzed, in faith, seeking healing, in response to their faith, Jesus leans down to this man and says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, every time I've ever heard this story told, or every time I've heard a sermon preached on it, Like, I'm 58 years old, and I've been going to church my whole life, all right? In fact, I can can say this to y'all. I had a drug problem as a child. I was drugged to Sunday school, drugged to church, right? Okay, so uh, anyway, so I've heard these stories all along. And and I swear, every time I've ever heard these stories, I hear something like this. Um, People say, well, now here's a lesson here we can all learn. You know, we want Jesus to heal our infirmities and to fix our problems. And these guys want him to help this guy be able to walk. But we don't understand what our real problem is. Our real problem, Jesus is saying, is that you need to have your sins forgiven. Almost as if this guy and us is going to be disappointed that they went to all this trouble and they dug a hole in the roof and and he's not going to leave Walking upright, you know, but Jesus knows what we really need, you know, so y'all learn. And that's how I've always heard the story told. And maybe there's some validity to that. We want Jesus to fix our problems. We don't understand the gravity of our heart problem. But I'm, I'm reading this story one day, and something in me stops and thinks, what if that's not the story? What if there's something else going on here? There's something about the story that if you think like a detective, it Well, let's see what we can learn about it. My question is this. What if this man was not disappointed in what Jesus said to him? What if Jesus knew exactly what he needed to hear? Think about it like this. we got to think like Sherlock here a second. 
This man was a paralytic, a paralytic in the ancient Near East, right? How long did those guys expect to live? In fact, Charles Spurgeon, when he comments on this passage, he says, perhaps the reason that these men were in such a hurry to get their friend to Jesus was possibly because he was close to death. Now think about it. They could have waited outside until after the sermon, right? They could have talked to him tomorrow, right? This was Jesus' hometown. They knew his hangouts. What's the urgency? But somehow... They felt the rush, the intensity, the urgency to go and climb on someone else's roof and dig a hole in someone else's roof and get this man to Christ now. Do the math. What's up with that? It's like the paramedics busting into a house to drag the, the patient out to the hospital quick, stat, you know, only instead of dragging him out of the house to the hospital, they're dragging him into the house to the hospital. But I wonder if this man... And his friends were worried about death. There's this urgency. So what would he need? What would he be feeling? Well, do you ever think about your death? Does it ever scare you thinking about meeting God in eternity? I don't know how secure you are in your faith, but sometimes I get scared. Sometimes death scares me. You know, you wake up in the middle of the night, and you kind of have those fearful feelings like, you know, if I died right now, am I really his? If right now I stood before the God of the universe, does he want me really? There's so much at stake. Am I really saved? God, that's kind of scary to me. I don't know about you, but it is for me. What do you feel in your deathbed? What if Jesus knew exactly what this man needed to hear? In fact, the Matthew version of the story, Jesus begins his interaction with this man by telling him to not be afraid. He says, fear not, take heart, is the first thing he says to him. Jesus knows this guy is afraid. He has just met his maker. And so what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says to him, son, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. What would you give at those times when you feel the most insecure in your faith, the most vulnerable about whether he loves you, even about your eternal salvation or, or even expecting death what would you give to have Jesus kneel down at your side and put his hand on your shoulder and call you son and tell you to not be afraid and tell you your sins, those sins that scare you, they're forgiven. I wonder if Jesus knew exactly what this man needed the most. His primary question in the middle of the night. Do you love me? And Jesus says, not only do I love you, I call you my son. And he says to all of us who trust in him, I know you are paralyzed, and I know you are unable, and I know that you try, and you try, and you try, and you fail, and you know what else? You're going to die sometime. Clock's ticking. And I want you to know that you don't need to be afraid. I kneel down and I call you son. Get to know the family 
to which you belong. This next piece is a bit of a throwaway in this sermon, but I can't resist it. Um, Next in the story, we get a little glimpse into the subjective experience of what it was like to be Jesus, right? Do you ever wonder, like, what was it like to be Jesus on earth? You know, what did it feel like to be Jesus? I'm a shrink. Throw me a bone. We wonder this stuff, right? All right, so there are these scribes there watching this whole thing, and they get disturbed by this whole interaction, this whole forgiving of sins thing, rightly, in a sense, they're disturbed, knowing rightly that only God can forgive sins. So they're concerned about this whole thing. And Jesus hears their hearts, and he's going to respond to them in a minute with a demonstration of his power. But before he does, he's going to give us a little glimpse into what it is like to be him. What he says to the scribes is, let me ask you this. Which, is, which do you think is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say to him, take up your bed and walk? <laughs> which is easier? And do you ever think that some things would be harder or easier for Jesus? I mean, we all have that experience, right? It's easy to cook scrambled eggs. It's hard to cook eggs benedict. It's easy to pay, play uh, tennis at the club. It's hard to play Djokovic in the U.S. Open. Okay, we get that. But for Jesus, it's easy to heal paralyzed legs, to make people walk. That's easy. It's hard to forgive sins. The cost for Jesus is deeply hard. The price of getting to call you son is very high. It's hard. And he knew it, and he anticipated it. It would be hard. This is the person you have a relationship with. He is a person. He gets sad, he is alive, he hurts, and he gave his life for you. And it was hard. Now, let's look at our other story. In Mark 5, Jesus is again quite occupied, this time by one of the people who's usually on his case, uh, Jairus, who's a leader in the synagogue. These are usually the guys who are like, you know, mumbling behind Jesus' back. Only Jairus needs his help. Jairus' daughter is sick. He comes to Jesus. Jesus consents to help. And they begin immediately this walking trip to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. And apparently, nobody in Capernaum has anything to do. They're just going to all go along. Let's take off work. Jesus is going to Jairus' house. All right. So there's a throng of people following behind him. But suddenly, in the story, the camera focuses on this one anonymous woman in the crowd. And I literally mean anonymous. Notice in both of these stories, neither of these people are given names. Jesus is the only one who gives them names. What else we learn about her is that she has some form of hemorrhaging, all right? Um, An internal blood flow that hasn't stopped for 12 years. And even the account of the story from Luke, the doctor, admits that, yeah, she spent all her money on doctors and we haven't been able to help her. In fact, she's gotten worse, all right? Now, one of the things that we can deduce from this is that this has been a very lonely 12 years, okay? The kind of bleeding that she had 
made her ceremonially unclean according to Old Testament law, which meant that anyone who touched her would likewise become ceremonially unclean. And she couldn't go to the tabernacle, and she had to celebrate Passover like a month late, and there were even like warnings of death ultimately to those who remained unclean. So she could not touch another person, nor could she be touched by another person, and that has been so for 12 years. She is deeply, deeply alone because she's unclean. But the story tells us that she's heard about Jesus, and so you can imagine the plan she sort of concocts here. It's like, okay, I'm unclean, and I can't have direct contact with anybody, much less this, this holy teacher. I'm untouchable, but perhaps if I'm sneaky, perhaps if I come up behind him, you know, real quiet-like, and just touch his garment, not him, perhaps I can get some of that vibe, some of that healing power, and then sneak away again, okay? Plan, all right? So now imagine the elevated track camera gimbaled camera angle following the crowd from behind as Jesus walks and the crowd is behind him, but in the scene moves this one woman kind of creeping forward, moving her way through the crowd, you know, trying not to touch anybody, um, but also on the lookout, looking around, don't want the disciples to bust her, right? And as we watch the scene, her hand gets closer and closer to Jesus's robe, his garment, the fringe at the bottom, and she reaches out her hand, and at last her hand closes on it, and she can feel it. She feels it's dirty, and it's gritty, and then all of a sudden she feels something else that she hasn't felt in 12 years. She feels the bleeding stop. She feels it. And Jesus feels it. We're told he can literally feel the power flow out of him. Another glimpse into the, his subjective experience. Apparently he had an awareness of that. He feels the power move through him. And he spins around and he stops the crowd and he asks a question. A question I assume he knows the answer to. But he says, who touched me? Who touched me? Now why does he do that? Like I say, he's reading the scribes' minds two chapters earlier. Why is he asking? He's asking because he wants to touch this woman, this untouchable woman, this woman who just wants to do a sneaky plan and get away with it, this woman who has no name, he wants her to be touched. He wants her to be engaged. And all of a sudden, she's busted, and the crowd stops and starts scanning, you know, who was it? Kind of like, you know, in, 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 in elementary school when some kid makes a rude noise and the teacher goes, who did that? You know, the whole class freezes, you know, everybody's like, who was it? That was never me. And the disciples even think this is kind of crazy. They're like, Jesus, you know, there's a, there's a thousand people here. There's people bumping each other's shoulders, stepping on each other's sandals, whatever. And Jesus stands his ground and he goes, who touched me? And this woman, realizing that she's outed, she comes forward and she's terrified. For a woman to even speak publicly in this culture was a scandal, much less to the holy teacher but we're told by Mark that she told him the whole truth. That's the phrase he uses. She told him the whole truth. I love that. 
She says, it was me. It was me. It's me. I'm unclean. And I've been that way for 12 years, and I've spent all my money, and I've looked everywhere but you, and I'm chronically unclean. And I just thought maybe if I touched your garment, somehow maybe that would heal me where others have not, and then I could just sneak away again. And what does he say? He looks at her and he says, Daughter, The Greek there, by the way, is a filial, tender term, almost like baby girl, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. She has no name. She is alone. She's been not touched by another human being for 12 years. And she doesn't even feel like she can personally approach Jesus, but Jesus has other plans for her. He seeks her out. He wants personal. He wants family. He wanted his daughter. This is our salvation, my friends. This is our family. This is our hope. And these stories are us. We're, you know, the first story we are paralyzed and we are helpless and we are afraid, maybe dying. The second story, we are unclean. And if you're unclean like me, there is a beautiful poetic kind of moment in this story if you know your Old Testament law. Let me ask you, what happens in the Old Testament if the unclean touches the clean? Well, the unclean gets sullied. It gets dirtied as well. And now you're both unclean. And you're both off to the tabernacle to do all sorts of laborious ceremonial cleansing together, all right? But in this story, when the unclean touches the clean, the, the clean isn't sullied. The unclean is made clean. And what happens when we bring our dirtiness to Jesus even if you feel like it's too much from him, even if you want to hide, even if it's humiliating, you know, imagine him seeing you doing, you know, that thing or treating that person that way, you know, and we're afraid that our uncleanness is going to ruin this story. He's not going to want you anymore. This story comforts us by reminding us that when we touch Christ and he touches us, he didn't start to look like us. We start to look like him. And my friends, everything starts to look like him. Let me ask you another question. Why does Jesus spend so much of his time in the New Testament healing people? You know? Like I said, I grew up in the church. I've heard these stories all my life. You kind of get used to them. You know, that's what Jesus does. He walks around and he heals people, right? But why? Why is that what he does? Was it to demonstrate his divinity? Well, maybe, I don't know, but to do that, he could have done anything. You know, make the sky purple or make animals talk. I don't know. Why heal people? Why cast out demons? Why raise people from the dead? Why those things? Well, I'll tell you what I think. We got any other English majors in the group here besides me? English majors? You've heard the term anyway. In English lit, we have a term we call foreshadowing. 
And foreshadowing means a little thing happens earlier in the story that sort of pre-echoes something big that's going to happen later in the story. Like, a guy is going to die later in the story, walks through the church graveyard, and the bell tolls, and the chills go up his back, and ooh, spooky foreshadowing, okay? Well, Jesus heals as foreshadowing, but not as a foreshadowing of death. He heals as a foreshadowing of of life. You see, Jesus didn't come into the world just to save you from the penalty of your sins. You're thinking too small. Jesus came into a world that God had made perfect ages ago, a world in which he walked with his sons and his daughters in the cool of the day, and in a world where they could be naked and not ashamed, in a world where they, there was no hiding, where they were touched were they who they were who they were in intimacy and closeness and safety and warmth with him and with one another in a world where no one hurt and no one died and no one had paralysis and no one had hemorrhaging and sin destroyed that not just our separation from God it destroyed that world and Jesus comes not just to make everything right between us and God Jesus comes to make everything right and he heals in the Gospels as foreshadowing of that. This is just a taste of what I am going to do to this universe. I came to make everything whole. I came to make everything broken, unbroken. I've came to make us, again, family. And his healing ministry is foreshadowing of that. After all, he doesn't just heal these people, right? He calls them son. And he calls him daughter. It ain't about the healing. So think about your life, and you think about your struggles, as I often think about mine. And maybe you're hopeless, or maybe you've tried everything. Maybe you've prayed for deliverance, and it doesn't seem to happen. Maybe you feel like you're really bad. Maybe you have some big secret sin that no one knows about. You've been untouched there for 12 years. You've tried every doctor, and you feel hopelessly unclean, but maybe you just have a little faith, that thing that ties us to him, that needful dependence. And maybe you have so little you can't even face him. Maybe all you can do is reach out in the tiniest little way from behind and say, I am not able, but something in me reaches for you because... I think you are able, and I'll make myself vulnerable to trust that you can reach back for me. Well, my friends, I believe that he will whirl around to find you and not just heal you and not just save you, but to call you son and to call you daughter. And he tells us to call his father, father. Abba. Because this is family. The, the broken are welcomed and the fearful are comforted and the untouchables are gathered into arms with a father and a son and a spirit and lots and lots and lots of sons and daughters calling him Abba and living forever with him. You have not received a spirit of slavery that leads to fear. You've received a spirit of adoption as signs.
by whom we cry, Abba Father. Welcome to the family.